Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Left Sense Podcast. My guest this week is legendary music executive, the youngest president in the history of the music business, president at age 32 of Atlantic Records, Jerry Greenberg. How you doing, my friend? Okay, now you've worked with literally a who's who of legends. ABBA, Led Zeppelin, Michael Jackson, okay? So, who was the best to work with, the most meaningful, not necessarily the easiest? <laughs> uh, well, that's a, that's a tough question to answer. Uh, I will say that probably the most creative and visionary person that I work with was Michael Jackson. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, forget about it. I mean, this guy, I remember when uh, he called me to interview me. To He was starting his own record label. And I came home and I said to my wife, I just met Walt Disney. And she said, what are you talking about? I said, this guy is such a visionary, such a visionary. He wants to build theme parks. He wants to do Broadway. He wants to be David Geffen. I mean, all rolled into one. And um, I, that's my was my first impression of him. I mean, I never never met him before, but we spent two hours together. Uh, he did his homework about Jerry Greenberg, and of course, I've been listening to Michael Jackson since right. I was a baby. But um, it was I would have to put him at pretty much at the top of the list in answer to your question. Okay, so you had that meeting. Did he live up to that meeting? Yes, there's no question. Okay, so what year did you get involved? I got involved with Michael in 1990. 1990. So what's the first project you worked on with him? Free Willy soundtrack. Uh, they wanted they wanted a, a song from Michael Jackson. I called Michael and he said to me, I, I, I saw the movie, I saw the tra- everything, but I can't write it. I don't have any time. And I went into his uh, uh, last album and I found a song called Will You Be There? And I sent it up to the producers, and I said, does this work? And they said, yes. And so that was the launch of MJJ Records, having the first soundtrack being Free Willy, one of Michael's songs. And then we put Michael's nephews in, 3T. Then we got a, a girls group to do a remake. So... Our first record for our record company ended up platinum out of the box. And what did you think when he died? Did you see that coming? Oh, no, not not, not at all. And I don't want to give it away, but there's a whole, there's a major story uh, about what happened that the, the day after Michael died. I, I will just say that, let me say that I was rushed to the hospital. Wait, for your own medical condition? My own, my own medical condition the day after he died. Okay. <laughs> and therefore, you attribute that to the news of his death? I attribute it to, yes, the news of his death, the fact that I was up doing interviews for almost 15 hours, the stress of everything, and... Um, but here I am. So. Now, now, did you have a cardiac event or anything, or it was just stress and you went to the hospital and you chilled out? Well... Uh, I went to the hospital because I had back pain and uh, pain in my arms and everything. And 
what happened is, believe it or not, I flatlined for 17 seconds. Wow. In the hospital or at home? No, in the hospital. Thank God. But I had the doctors around me, and they got me back. And the bottom line is I had a torn aorta. And but I had great doctors and they fixed it and uh, and I'm here. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. You're from New Haven, Connecticut, right? Correct. Okay, home of the world's best pizza. That's the big decision. We ask everybody: was it Pepe's or was it Sally's? So you went to Pepe's for the clam pizza, but you went to Sally's maybe more for the sauce and this and that. But uh, both of them were pretty, pretty, pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. <laughs> well, the funniest thing is it's one of the few things in life that live up to the legend. I remember going to Pepe's, being all hyped, and go, damn, this is really this good. Every time I go back to Connecticut, I have to get the pizza. Correct. Okay, so you're there, and you're growing up, and what does your father do for a living? My father was in the jewelry business. 39 years in the jewelry business. Everybody loved them. I mean, if you were going to go buy a watch or a piece of jewelry, oh, go down and see Bill Greenberg at Spectres in New Haven. Uh, he's the guy. Just so, wait, wait, just for one second. Spectres, was that connected to the same Spectres in Bridgeport? Do you know? I'm not sure. Just because my closest friend <laughs> from high school, I'm going to see in another month, his, fa- his mother was Spectre. And his father ran Spectres. And I knew there were like three or four stores. I'll ask him when he's out here. I bet it was. Okay. So now, was your father first-generation American? Yeah. Okay. And, okay, so he's working at Spectres. Right. And what's it like growing up? What's it like growing up? Mother and father, just great parents. My mother, a very hard worker. She held three jobs. She was a bookkeeper. She was a cashier. He had the one job at Specters. But uh, growing up in Connecticut, I grew up uh, on uh, an area called City Point, and it was near the water. So I grew up loving boating. I was painting boats when I was like nine years old and ten years old. You know, you don't know, I mean you can't see his hand wave. He doesn't mean paint artistically. He means literally painting boats. Yeah, <laughs> literally the bottoms of boats, et cetera, et cetera. So I, uh, you know, I grew up one around the water. I grew up with great parents and I was very lucky, very, very lucky. Now you had your brother it was just the two of you. It was just me and my brother. He and was, you were, who was the older brother? My, the, he was the older brother eight years. Eight years older than you. Correct. I didn't, re, I didn't realize. Okay, so when did you become interested in music? Okay, so I'm at a bar mitzvah, and the band takes a break, and there's music coming, playing, like, you know, through speakers or records or whatever. And I go over to the drums and sit behind the drum set, and I, I'm tapping, okay? And I see the drummer talk to my mother, and I say, oh, God, I, I guess he's mad. And next thing I know, my mother comes over, and she said, the drummer told me you have natural rhythm. I have to get you drum lessons. Wow. So within 30 seconds, I'm now a drummer. I mean, I'm taking drum lessons, ba 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 So now, do your we, parents buy you a kit, the whole bit? Oh, yeah. Listen, I, 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 I loved it. And what happened is 
there was a uh, a guy in New Haven who booked all the bar mitzvahs and weddings and this and that. He calls my mother up. I'm 15 years old. He calls my mother up and he says— Do you says, remember what year this was? Oh, God, I have to back up. It's somewhere in the 50s. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, so uh, I'm 15 years old. My mother says—his name was Arnold Most. He said, Arnold Most called and he said, everybody, we, every musician you, he can find works on New Year's Eve. Would you, can I book a job for your son to play? So she said, sure, go, but I— my, my father had to slip me down to, I remember it was called the O'Neagle Restaurant, like on Chapel Street right. in New Haven. I walk in, and the there was a bass player and a piano player, and they took a look at me. I mean, I'm 15 years old, babe. And he said, they go, okay. So I play all night with brushes uh, and get through it. 10 to 2 was was the gig. And I, I remember I came home and I had something like 30 or $35. You were rich. Rich. It was like what my father made all week. Right. You know. So, first of all, I always wanted a rowboat. And I went to my father once. I asked him for some money for a rowboat. He goes, you work for it. You can buy anything you want. Right. So, I, of course, I took the money, went right out, and I bought me a rowboat. And that was the beginning of Jerry getting into the music business, really. Okay, well, you played with these other pickup musicians. When was your next gig? My next gig was realizing that, wait a minute, there's money in being a musician. I found a guitar player, and I said, let's form a band. So we formed the band, and we started, uh, there was a group from New Haven, Connecticut called the Five Satins, which had the, probably the biggest doo-wop record in your, in history, and I became friendly with And the name of that them. record for my audience who may not know? Say again? What was the name of the record for the audience that may not know? Oh, In the Stole of the Night. Right. Oh, yeah. In the Stole of the Night, Should Up and Should Be Do. The big, biggest do-rock record during the, the the older days. Okay, at that point in time, was WAVZ still the top four? Absolutely. Station? Okay, I remember trying to pull that in from Fairfield. Right. And whenever when I went to summer camp, we played WAVZ. So in any event... That's the biggest doo-wop hit, biggest hit. Right. And you have this guitarist friend. And now all of a sudden we put a band together and we're backing them up. We're going to New York. You're backing up the uh, Five Satins? Yeah, we're backing up the Five Satins. How do you get that gig? They, we were a good band and, uh, you know, and they liked okay. us. But, but uh, let me just say this. My band turned out to be the number one college fraternity band in the area. If you watched Animal House and you saw uh, Belushi at that fraternity right. scene, my band was that band, <laughs> okay? And we used to play Yale and Wesleyan and Trinity, and we, we even got gigs up in Boston. So we, uh, we, were, we were rocking. I was so like, how, okay, so how old were you when this was happening? 18. Okay. 19. And how often would you work? Every weekend. Okay. And did you graduate from high school? Yes. Okay. You graduated from high school. No thought of college. You're a musician. I was thinking about music school, maybe Julius Hart School of Music, but uh, passed. Okay. So you're playing every weekend with your band. What kind of money are you making? Uh, we were getting paid 
anywhere from two, three hundred dollars a night. I was making anywhere from fifty dollars. I was booking, so I would take ten percent off the top. <laughs> I was the booker, and uh, I I got so many calls for our band. Did I remember I said to once to the fraternity guy, well, listen, we're booked, but I think I could get you a band. And he said, okay, great, I trust you. So now all of a sudden at 18 years old, I'm booking bands. I'm playing at all these different colleges. And, you know, I went from a rowboat to a uh, 17-foot speedboat. Wow. And are you still living at home? Uh, still living at home, correct. Okay. So the name of the band is? Was uh, The Passengers. Okay. And do you think, are you the kind of person, you're going to find a way, you're a survivor, you're going to find a way to make money. If it wasn't the music business, it would have been something else? I don't know. I, I never thought of, of, of ever, oh, God, you got to make money to live. I, I just... Well, it's just, it all just kind of came natural. Well, I guess it's one thing to be a member of the band. It's also another thing to book the band. But the story always is, is the drummer is the business guy. So this proves the point. Really? I oh, yeah. I, you get into it. I can give you example after example where the drummer is the business guy. Wow. So, okay, so you're doing this. So how long do you do this for? <laughs> how long do I do this for? I do it be, uh, uh, because we should, well... We were starting to cut records, and we the the guy who's uh, actually the producer of these different records, he's got a deal with a big publishing company in New York. So we would go to New York, we'd back up bands, back up the Satins or a couple of other groups, make some records. We were on Amy Malabelle as King Arthur and the Knights. We were on Atlantic as uh, Jerry and the Passengers. Uh, you know, we just cut a lot of a lot of different stuff. And one record that we caught, I couldn't get a deal for. So what I did was uh, I pressed up the record on my own. I sent the tape to RCA, pressed up the record on my own. My guitar player was named Seastrand. I'm Greenberg, Green Sea Records. Press it up, take the record, because I'm uh, getting very friendly with all the radio disc jockey guys, guys from AVZ, DEE. WDRC in Hartford. WDRC, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I was going to so, mention that. Oh, we'll talk about that in a minute. So uh, the bottom line is I press up the record and I put it into Cutler's. And I'm Which is a famous Hunt. record shop in New Haven, Connecticut. Yeah, it's the biggest. And uh, so I'm up in Hartford collecting my money at a distributor. I overhear the guy say, oh, my promotion man's leaving. I'm looking for somebody. I say to the guy, wait a minute. How about me? I'd love that job. So he gives me the job. I am now a record promotion man working for Seaboard Distributors out of Hartford, going as far down to Bridgeport, to WICC, I That think, is correct. To far uh, north as Springfield, WY something in Springfield. Right. And, of course, the big station in Connecticut was WDRC in Hartford. And that was run by Bertha Porter, who everyone knew at that time, if Bertha picked a record, it could break nationally. So, uh, Okay, a couple of questions. This yep. is, A, pre-Beatles. Yeah. 
So what kind of records were you working? Oh, no. You know what? It's very funny. I had VJ as one of my labels. Right. They had the, I had a Beatles record. Of, right. Of right. course. Introducing the Beatles on VJ, the it, one that Capital passed on. It, okay. So uh, uh, this is in uh, 1962. And, you know, we had Atlantic and Chess and Checker. And, uh, That's basically Imperial. when almost all the labels were independent. Yes. All the labels were independent. Okay. Now— did you were you continuing to play in your band on the weekends? Oh yeah. Now did you you were making good money, you were buying a speedboat. Did you have a dream of stardom? No. Okay, so you're just <laughs> doing it. So okay, you you took the job as a radio record promotion man, thinking I've got nothing to do Monday to Friday, or this will be a career, or I just want to have, you know, a job. Well, I didn't know, you know, it was a job, and I felt it could be a career because I love music. I was, when you love music, man, you just want to be around music. So I'm a guy who loves music, and I'm a musician. So what's better than that? Okay, so how long do you work for Seaboard? Uh, probably three or four years, but I became, you know, very close with everybody at Atlantic Records. And why was that? Uh, I think they liked me. I was breaking records in Connecticut for Atlantic. And I think uh, they realized all of a sudden Jerry had good ears. And Jerry Wexler, uh, Henry Allen was the head of promotion at the time. Henry calls me and he goes, listen, Jerry Wexler just bought a record. Just bought a record. He wants you to hear it. And tell him what, and tell you what he, what you think. And we're, I'm sending it up, I'm getting it up to you, special delivery. The record was Percy Sledge, When a Man Loves a Woman. <laughs> so I hear the record, and I'm very close with the DJ in New Haven at WDEE, daytime station. I go to WDEE at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I said, listen, put this on. He plays it at 2, plays it again at 3.30, Played it again at like five. The phones are going crazy, crazy. Cutler's record shop calls the station. What's this man loves a woman record you're playing? I'm, we got people coming in wanting to buy it. So I call Jerry Wexler the next day and I go, Jerry, you're going to have the biggest crossover pop record you've ever seen. Watch. And it was the truth. I mean, come on. We'll take a quick break and come back with more of my conversation with legendary record label executive Jerry Greenberg, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Hi, it's Bob Lefsetz. Over the last couple of months, I've interviewed the lead singer of Garbage, Shirley Manson, and legendary drummer Kenny Aronoff. But I really love getting the stories of the executives in and around the music industry, like Jerry. Whether you come for the music, the tech, or otherwise, be the first to hear next week's episode by subscribing to the podcast on TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, or your podcast player of choice. While you're there, please rate and review. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Jerry Greenberg. What was the key to promoting a record tour? I mean, that's an obvious one. But when a record's not that obvious, what was the key to getting it on the radio? Um, Just to... 
tenacity. <laughs> keep keep pounding the guy and going, hey, look, it, it just happened in Texas or it's doing this somewhere else or what do you call it? The, the key to being a good promotion man, I think, is one, being honest, two, having a good track record. Because remember, you're trying to talk this guy into taking airtime and play a record. You don't want to play a stiff. Right, that's he, for he, sure. He wants to play a hit. He wants to be the first to play a hit. And I had that relationship, I think, with a lot of guys and uh, and girls. And But I was very close with Bertha. And uh, she, she loved me. So uh, let me just say this. A job opens up at the other distributorship. Okay, there's two big distributorships in Harvard. Job opens up. My brother's doing radio promotion. I, oh. I mean, not radio promotion, selling time at a radio station. Okay. So I say to Bertha, Bertha, do me a favor. I'd like my brother to get that job. She says, well, I got to meet him. I said, fine. So I set up a lunch. She falls in love with my brother. She calls the distributor. Hey, you know, Jerry's got a brother, Bob Greenberg. Uh, boom. Bob gets the job. So now we got... Bob at one distributor, me at the other. But here's the best story yet. You ready? I have to go in the Army to do uh, Army Reserve. You know, none of us want to get drafted at that right. time. Uh, you could be out if you had a baby. That would postpone you getting drafted. So none of us wanted to go to Vietnam. Anyways, I sign up for Army Reserve. Army Reserve, you got to go away for six months, and then you have to serve for four more years, uh, going to meetings, etc., and I, I I signed up. So Jerry Wexler calls me up, head of Atlantic, says Jerry, after the uh, thing with the happened with the, the Percy Sledge record, I want to hire you. I want you to come to New York and work for me. I said, Jerry, I can't right now because I have to serve six months in the army. I don't want to come there and then have to go. I said, but as soon as I get out, is the job still open? The day you're out of the Army, you're coming to work for Atlantic Records. I go, okay, great. So now I get the call to go and serve. So I say to my brother, let me ask you a question. What do you think if we put Dad into the record business? <laughs> so he says, I said, this, is, this job's perfect for him. Everybody loves him. It's personality. I said, he grew up listening to me with the band downstairs. He loves music. She, he says, let's take a shot. So we go to Bertha. And we go, Bertha, I got to go in the Army for six months. But I want my dad to fill in for me. Is that cool? She said, I got to meet him. I go, fine, you'll love him. So we bring dad up to Hartford and has lunch with Bertha Porter. I go to Marvin, my boss, and I say, listen, I got to go away now for six months, but I got the replacement for me for six months. <laughs> I say, you know, who's that? I said, my father. Your father? Yeah, trust me. Bertha loves him. I, he calls up Bertha. She says, oh, yeah, Bill Greenberg. He's great. Blah, blah, blah. So, bingo. My father now <laughs> took my job. He's in pr doing record promotion. So he gives up his jewelry salesman's job. Gives up the jewelry. Now, he died and went to heaven. He got a car. He got an expense account. He's taking these DJs out. I love golf. <laughs> so I, I said, Dan, take the guy from AVZ out to play golf. He did. Now, he's getting records on 
After I'm on in the army two months, I get a note from Marvin. Don't come back. Your father's better than you. <laughs> so we had the Greenberg dynasty. There was an article came out in Cashbox. The Greenberg dynasty, father, son, brother. But it's a reverse kind of trip if you Absolutely. think about it. You know, it's usually the kid gets in the father's business. This was the kid put the father in, in my business. But just, I, to, just to uh, clean up one little uh, hole here. Your brother, how do you get into selling radio time? Um, that's interesting. I, I don't know. He just he knew somebody at a radio station, and a job came. He did it for uh, it could have it might have been AVZ in New Haven, one of the radio stations in New Haven. So that was I utilized that with Bertha. Like, hey, this guy, you know, he's not a cook or a right. car salesman or something. He's in radio already. Let's get him out of selling time and let's get him into promotion. So in any event, you're in the Army for six months. You get out and you go to work for Atlantic? Correct. And do you have to move to New York City? No. I'm living in New Haven and I'm commuting every day. Every day from New Haven? Every day from New Haven. That's almost because I grew up, as I say, in Fairfield. When I grew up in Fairfield in the 60s, that was just one step too far. People commute now. Yeah. But New Haven, that's like an hour and a half each way on the train. Yeah. I took the train a couple of times, but it didn't work out, so I'm driving. And they give you parking? Because <laughs> parking in New York City could eat up your whole salary. <laughs> uh now they, as it happened after about two years, I remember I went into Ahmed and I said, listen, you know, you guys got me out late at night. I'm driving home at 11 o'clock. I said, we, we got to fix this. So they gave me a car and a driver. Oh, really? Yeah. And then <laughs> they, they kept on saying, why don't you move to the city? And I said, my wife, ex-wife, uh, does not like living in the city with the kids. I said, but I, you know, if you help me out, I will move closer. And I did. I moved to Greenwich. <laughs> so I was in Greenwich. Now we're on a 45-minute ride. Right. And uh, I'm commuting. Okay. So you go to work for Atlantic. Do you remember what year that is? Was that 64? 67. 67. 67, 68. Okay. So they're still doing the rascals over there at Atlantic. Oh, yeah. Okay, what's your gig at Atlantic? <laughs> I come in, and that's what I thought. I, I, I show up the first day, and I said, what am I, a promotion man? What I No, you're Jerry Wexler's assistant. And I'll never forget, we walk in to a meeting, Jerry Wexler and probably 15 Atlantic people, staff people, and he goes, I want to introduce Jerry Greenberg. He's my new assistant. So I expect you to treat him with respect. And I remember, I knew a lot of those guys because they, they would be calling me to promote different records. They all knew who I was. So I came in as, as Jerry's assistant where I, I will tell you that's the man that taught me the record business. Okay, so tell us more about Jerry. Well, uh, Jerry, uh, somebody asked me something about Jerry and I said, Working for Jerry Wexler was like joining the Marines. You either came out a drill sergeant or they found you in a swamp. <laughs> and I, I mean, Jerry would think nothing on the Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur. He, he called my house. He says, 
I got to speak to Jerry. And my wife said, he's in the temple. Give me the temple number. I want to talk to him. Jerry would call me at 3 in the morning and say, did you listen to the Otis Redding test pressing? I'm hearing ticks and pops. I mean, he was just a maniac in a good way. Uh, taught me always return phone calls. Taught me, people said, how'd you become president at, at, at 32 years old? I said, I called everybody back and I knew how to say yes or no. And that was Jerry Wexler teaching me that. Okay, so, but Jerry was also a producer. Jerry's the guy that signed Aretha Franklin. Jerry would produce. The first job I had at Atlantic, Jerry calls me in his office. He says, listen, the first thing we're going to do, I'm producing Dusty Springfield. I love her. She's from England. He said, I, I need songs. So he gives me a list of people to call, like uh, Carol King and Jerry Goffin and Ellie Greenwich and all these different people. So my first job at Atlantic Records was finding songs for Jerry Wexler to produce Dusty Springfield. Uh, I found a couple myself, believe it or not, that made the album. And that was the Dusty in Memphis album. Right, legendary. Jerry, legendary album. But Jerry, Jerry's gig was running Atlantic during the day and making records at night with... Dr. John, or his biggest artist was basically Aretha Franklin. And he discovered Aretha, I mean, took her from Columbia, made her a big, big star. And that was his biggest claim to fame. But what happened is basically they sold a company. Right? To Kinney, to Warner Brothers. To one, yeah, they were, it was called Kinney at the time, then they changed to Warner Brothers. And once the company was sold... I think Jerry made the decision, probably 1970, that he wanted to spend more time recording. He also loved the water. So he ended up buying a place in Florida, had a boat in Florida, uh, connected with Criteria Studios. Studios, right. And he would record all of his acts at Criteria and be on the phone with me but he wasn't running the company anymore. Now we'll cut to the beginning of Jerry's rise in Atlantic. Okay, let's just go back for one second. Sure. At the time, Herb Abramson was out, but his wife was still there being the accountant? No, no, she wasn't there when I came. Okay, so she was what from. was Ahmed's role when you were there? Ahmed's role was a guy who, he was the president of the company, or co-founder of the company when I first came. I never saw him. Really? Yeah, never saw him. Uh, he was either in England or he was in California. Ahmed's claim to fame, uh, once I joined the company, was finding a lot of the English acts from England, getting a relationship with Chris Blackwell. So right. now all of a sudden we got Mata Hoople and we got King Crimson. So um, and Robert Stigwood and he heard Clapton in the club. So Amon spent most of his time in Europe, in England, and in California. Amon signed the Iron Butterfly, right, and all of those acts. So you had Amon more of an A and R source. Jerry more of a guy who ran day to day, but also record producer. That was before they sold the company or just as they sold the company. Okay, so really Jerry was uh, Jerry Wexler was the day-to-day -day guy, not oh, Ahmed. 
Oh, yeah, no question. <laughs> okay, so Jerry Wexler moves to Florida. Right. And that leaves you where? That leaves me, even while Jerry was there, I kind of moved, was moving up. I was the head of promotion. I was the national promotion director. I had a great team, Dickie Klein and uh, Danny Marcus and all the, all these all these great, great promotion people. Then they promoted me. I started signing acts. And the first act I signed, believe it or not, 1967 or 68, was Archie Bell and the Drills, Tighten Up. Right, well, so that, that was on Atlantic, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I okay, you know, record. that's funny. That, that record didn't sound like anything else. No. And that my sister bought the single. Huge hit. Huge hit. How did you find that? I got it in the mail from Huey Moe. <laughs> you know who you producer in Texas. Right. So, spelled spelled M E A U X. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So so uh, so then I moved up as head of A and R because I'm signing all of these acts. Then they promoted me to general manager. So now I'm the second in command, right under under Wexler. Now you're moving up so quickly. Aren't other people jealous? No, it was a family there. Okay. Family. The older guys had a lot of respect for me. George Furness, Juggy Gales. Juggy you, Gales, you, wow. You, you know those Right, names. right, right, I mean, right. For those of you who don't know, I started getting Bob's sheet in Atlantic Records probably the early 70s. It was on a blue piece of paper. It used to come in the mail. I used to open it up and read it. You had the, the Bob left this tip of the week and this and that. So... I'm probably one of his podcast guys here who go back longer with Bob than anybody. Absolutely. And so uh, continue your journey up the Atlantic food chain. Well, so the, my, my journey, the biggest thing that happened, so they sell the company, Jerry's in Florida. Ahmed comes into my office and he goes, I'm signing the Rolling Stones. You're the only person in Atlantic I trust talking to Mick Jagger. <laughs> he says, so you're going to come with me. We had a signing party in France, and I f flew to France with Ahmed, and we signed the Rolling Stones. That was the beginning of my relationship now with Ahmed. And I'll never forget, Mick came into New York with the first album. Which was Sticky Fingers. Which was Sticky Fingers, and... Ahmed calls me, he says, Mick's here with the first record. He wants to play it for me, but I want you there. And we walk down to the mastering room, and me, Mick Jagger, and Ahmed, and he looks to, uh, to Jagger, and he said, this guy picks all the singles here. He says, let him hear your record, Brown Sugar. Of course. That's your single. And from that moment on, I became a hero with Mick. Wow. So now, when do you become the president? Just 1974. So 1974. Correct. And is there a president before, or is that Jerry Wexler? No, that would, the president was Ahmed. Ahmed okay. said, I'm moving up to chairman. Uh, you know, Steve Ross wants me as chairman of Atlantic. You're going to be president. Boom, boom, boom. So there I am, man. I mean, you know, 32 years old, president of Atlantic. But... Um, you know, Jerry wasn't there to answer the phones. Ahmed's always traveling, never came in the office until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And so I was the guy. But I will tell you that I had the greatest team at Atlantic Records. You know, I loved football. Uh, 
I, I say we were the Green Bay Packers during that time. Call me Vince Lombardi. I don't know what you want to call me. But it was that team there, that spirit. Nobody wanted to go home. Everybody loved the artists. Everybody loved the music. The music, the musicians were, it was like nothing you've ever seen. And unfortunately, nothing that exists now. Right, of course. Okay, so they have a legendary run. It's not only the Stones, they have Led Zeppelin. So tell us about your work with Led Zeppelin. Well, let me tell you how Led Zeppelin got signed. We're working on the Bud Dusty and Springfield album, and Dusty says to Jerry Wexler, you know, John Paul Jones is going to form a new group with Jimmy Page. He's leaving the Yardbirds. So Jerry goes, I want it. And he finds out that uh, Steve Weiss, who's a lawyer for the Rascals, manages Jimmy Page. Picked up the phone. Jerry Wexler signed Led Zeppelin just off of, we never heard a note of music, just off of the legendary Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, who's the greatest session musician in London. There was no Bonzo. There was no Robert Plant. And Jerry Wexler signed Led Zeppelin. Wow. So now we get the first record. First record does okay. I become very friend, very good friends with Peter Grant. The manager. The manager. A very big guy. Used to be a wrestler. Everybody was afraid of him. Everybody said he managed the animals, I think, also. Um, he was partners with Mickey Most. He and I just hit it off. I mean, you know, if you go back and think about it, if managers don't get along with the head of promotion, how are they going to get their records? Right, right of course. <laughs> so he was smart enough to know, hey, God, I, I, I think I should treat this Jerry Greenberg with respect. But it was better than that because, remember, I'm a drummer. I'm a musician. I'm one of them. Right. I'm not, I didn't come from being an accountant or a lawyer or what they call it. Hey, man, I'm one of you guys. So Peter Grant and I were very, very close. But this is the great Led Zeppelin, Jerry Greenberg story. So second record comes out. A whole lot of love is blowing up on the FM stations. Blowing up. But it's five minutes and some odd seconds. You're not going to get that on WABC. Right. You're not going to get it on ABC. I call up Peter Grant. I go, Peter, do me a favor. Talk to Jimmy Ask him to go in the studio and make an edit for me on Whole lot of Love. We're not a singles band. So I said, please, please. He comes back. I spoke to Jimmy. He's not doing it. Click. So now this record's getting bigger and bigger. Call him back. You got to give it to me. I'm telling you, I can, we can break the group in America. You got to. Calls me back. We're not doing it. So I say, what if I did it? Let me, let me make an edit, and I'll send it to you for your approval. Go ahead. I take the record. I put it down by my desk. I watch the clock. At 2.45, they're in the hook. What's the hook? Need a whole lot of love? Right. Need a whole lot of love? I fade it out. I fade it at 3.05. I send it to Peter. Peter says to me, Jimmy wants to know, what are you going to do with this exactly? I said, oh, I'm just going to cut a couple of dubs <laughs> and send it. <laughs> a couple of dubs and send it to a couple of radio stations. Jimmy said, okay. 
I pressed up 2,000 records, 2,045s. Long version one side, short version on the other. We know what happened, right? right. We know what happened. It was, first and foremost, I remember because I was a fan of the first album, and it was an inside thing. That album came out, Led's Up Into, within a week. Everybody in my high school had it. Whole lot of love was everywhere. I played it every day for a week and then couldn't play it for like months just because everywhere you went, you heard that record. Correct. So the band, so the record blows up, right? You'll love this. I get a call from Peter. Jimmy wants to know when the record's coming on the chart. Peter, record can't come on the chart. It's not out as a single. Right. Oh, calls back. Jimmy said, put it out as a single. <laughs> so we put it out in America. They wouldn't put it out. In, it wouldn't allow it in England, I believe. We put it out. I think the record went top 10 for sure. Absolutely. That broke the band. Absolutely. But, you know, that was something that Jerry's proud of. He had the tenacity to keep calling, the chutzpah, to, you know, get that record on the radio. It blew right up. I mean, WABC in New York's playing Led Zeppelin. Come on. Right. That's a legendary top 40 station. Correct. For those people who don't know. You're listening to my conversation with legendary record label executive Jerry Greenberg, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Hope you're enjoying this episode of the Bob Left Sets podcast. If you want to see videos, photos, and sound bites from Jerry and the rest of my guests as they join me in the studio, visit at TuneIn on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, more of my conversation with Jerry Greenberg on the Bob Left Sets podcast. Okay, just stay with Led Zeppelin for a while. The next album, Led Zeppelin 3, is a complete left turn, doesn't do as well. But then they come out with a fourth album with Stairway to Heaven. Correct. Are you aware that that's going to become the most famous rock track of all time? Well, did I did I think it, you know, right at the beginning? Not really. I knew it was something special, though. It was very, very special. I mean, English bands are special. You know, I mean, you, you think about, you, you listen to Genesis and Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and the, the musicianship from English bands is just incredible. And when you think about Stairway to Heaven with the guitar solo and, and the, the shift in tempo and... It was it was absolutely amazing. So now let's cut to number one FM cut in the in the country. Right. Eight minutes, seven minutes. <laughs> right. We ain't cutting that, I don't think. Right. But I call him up and I say, "Give me something. Give me something that you, we could hang our hats on." And they ended up, we, I forget who did it. I, I know I didn't go in and just fade it out. Right. We had to work on the guitar solo and everything. But we got it down to five minutes. And so we got a lot of top 40 stations to, to play Stairway to Heaven. But it's the number one FM track in history. Of course. Right. It used to be, you know, they had the Memorial 500. It was always number one. So let me, let me just tell you my great Led Zeppelin story. So I would go to their concerts. Mostly they'd play two or three nights at Madison Square Garden, uh, always backstage, always sitting on the speakers, took the kids. One night at the garden, Richard Cole, who is their road manager, 
I see they set up a, a congas. And on Whole lot of Love, the encore, Richard go out and play congas. So I say to Richard, let me do it. He goes, come on. I said, come on. You know I'm a drummer. Let me do it. He says, give me $50. <laughs> I say, you got it. I whip into my pocket. I take out $50. I go out. I am playing congas on the Led Zeppelin Whole lot of Love encore at Madison Square Garden. And Jimmy and Robert turn around to see me. They get hysterical. The song ends. I go to walk off stage. Bonzo grabs me by my shirt, drags me to the front of the stage. <laughs> I'm in the middle of Led Zeppelin. Jerry Greenberg is in the middle of Led Zeppelin taking a bow at Madison Square Garden. I can tell you that's a memory, buddy. That's for sure. Now, let's go through some of your other greatest hits at Atlantic. You sign ABBA. Correct. How did that happen? It happened because Nesui Erdogan, who was Ahmed's brother, who was one of the founders of Atlantic, who when the company got sold, became head of WIA International, called me up and he said, listen, the uh, Eurovision song of the year is a song by a Swedish group called uh, the song's called Waterloo, and the group's called ABBA. And um, I don't think they have a deal in America. I'm getting a copy of the record. I'm going to give it to Phil Carson, who's the head of our international company, and uh, I'll have him send it to you. And I get the record in the mail, and I listen to it, and it kind of had like a Phil Spector, Beach Boy-ish kind of sound, and I knew it was great. So I want called the lawyer, in New York, they said the record's available, and I signed what turned out to be the biggest selling group in the world. And who else did you work with in your tenure there at Atlantic? Who else did I sign or work with? I work with Both. everybody. I mean, you know, Roberta Flack, Aretha Franklin, uh, Benny King. Well, I, uh, you know, I was the head of promotion, but then I became the head of the record company. So uh, I work with the whole roster. So who else did you sign? Oh, I signed Foreigner. That's probably my biggest rock signing. Uh, I remember hearing Feels Like the First Time on the Radio and literally driving directly to the record store. Just had to own it. Right. The it sound of that record. Feels Like the First Time. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I heard you on, uh, when you did the Paul Rogers interview, right. you talked about hearing Free on the Merritt Parkway. Right. You got to remember, I'm driving home every night to Greenwich. That's in the car. That's where I was picking the records. I didn't have time in the office to listen to music. I'm, I'm getting 150 phone calls a day. So when did Jerry get a chance to listen to music? On the way home, had a limo, had a tape deck, speakers, cassettes, and they sent me the Bad Company record, and I picked the... Uh, Can't get, get enough. enough of your love. I laugh when you talk about that with Paul Rogers because... I got on the Mirror Parkway, and I played that record all the way to Greenwich. Yeah, that's an instant hit. Yeah, one, one listen hit. One listen hit. How do you sign Foreigner? How did I sign Foreigner? Bud Prager called me, who I knew, who managed uh, uh, an act on Atlantic. He managed Mountain, obviously, managed Leslie West, the producer. Called me, says, I got a great band for you, ba 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 They sent over a tape feel like the first time was on the demo tape. 
I said, I got to see them live. So I go to the recording to, uh, studio that they're rehearsing at. I had Jim Delahan, who was the head of my A&R guy, and another guy. And we go there, and they audition for me. And Mick says to me... Mick Jones. He, Mick Jones, I'm sorry. Mick Jones, the lead in the guitar player, says to me, well, you know, we're talking to A&M, which is a California-based record company, big record company. And we're talking to Arista, which is Clive Davis's new company. Three companies with A's in them. And I said, listen, first of all, you don't want to sign with A&M. They're a great company, but they're based in California. Number two... We're based here. We're based here in L.A. And I always give the bands Jerry's pitch that he's a drummer, that he's one of them. So I said to him, I said to him, listen, man, you know, I'm a drummer. In fact, let me sit in with you guys now. I want to play a song. I get up and I jam with the band. So, like, Mick Jones is, like, kind of shocked and they're all, you know, I pretty good two and four drummer so they say to me i i say to them i say listen tell bud you want to sign with atlantic but we got a deal i promise you a gold record on the first record but i gotta play madison square garden when you play the (laughs) sure enough we didn't put it in the contract but sure enough their first record comes out there was only one other record that came out at the same time that blew up like that boston Right. Right? So Boston was six months before. Six months before, right. I remember Bud coming to my office every day. I'm glad you said that because he used to come to my office every day. I want Boston. You got to make this like Boston. And and we did. So now they're going to play the garden. And I I know they're going to play the garden. I said, hey, well, you know, we got a bet. They said, don't worry, we're going to take care of it. So I'm on the side of the stage. Sure enough, on the encore, uh, Hot-Blooded, I think it was the song. I, whatever the encore was, they take out a drum set. Jerry goes out. Jerry plays the encore. They say to me, you know, we're going to take this drum set on the road. <laughs> so wherever you show up, you can, you, you can sit in. So they played the forum. I flew to California. <laughs> <laughs> I did the forum. I did Miami. I did all the warm places, Hawaii. But we're, we're to this day... Uh, I'm still very close with Mick Jones. You know, they've changed members. Uh, I saw him, what, a year ago when they played out here. And, uh, you know, you go to a foreign co- foreigner concert, it's like a jukebox. Absolutely. It's amazing how many hits they have. And oh. then when they worked with Mutt Lang and they did that incredible album, Foreigner 4, it was just unreal. So, okay, you tell us how you uh, got Foreigner away from A&M and Arista. Did you ever lose a band? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I missed a few. Uh, I was the first guy to see Billy Joel. I wanted to sign Billy Joel. And it's a long story. But anyways, he ended up on Columbia. Um, And uh, this is a great story you'll love. And this is a true story. So I get a call from Steve Lieber, who's the manager. Yeah, partner uh, with David Krebs. With David Krebs, big manager in New York. He says, I want you to come and see a band we're going to have at Max's Kansas City. I said, okay. I show up with Ahmed. He said, but you got to bring Ahmed. So I said, okay. So it's Ahmed, myself. Phil Carson was in town, my a guy from Europe, Jim Delahan. We go to Max's Kansas City. 
Who's sitting next to me? Clive Davis. Who's on the other side of me? The head of RCA. All the record companies are there. All of a sudden, band comes out. Who is it? Steve Tyler. And he's got scarves. And Ahmed leans over after the second number. He says, we're out of here. I said, Ahmed, I can't leave. I said, Steve, leave here. He's a friend of mine. We're not getting up and leaving. Just sit there, have another drink. So after every song... I get up and I'm applauding. Yo, go ahead. Steve Lever and Clive's next table is looking at me. All of a sudden, Lever comes over after the show. He goes, you loved them, right? I said, we hated them. He said, you're kidding. I said, no. I said, Ahmed wanted to leave, but I kept them here. <laughs> I said, Ahmed says to me, we had just signed the Stones. He's imitating Mick Jagger, ba 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 so he said, yeah, but I was watching you. I said, I did it for you. Go over and tell Clive Davis you just got a big offer from Atlantic. Double it. He'll double it. Guaranteed. True story. That's what happened. So that's how Aerosmith ended up in Columbia. That's how Aerosmith ended up in Columbia. So you work as the head of, uh, president of Atlantic to what year? Till 1980. 1980. In 1980... I decided after missing a couple of great opportunities. Uh, Talk about business opportunities. Bus- yes. Label opportunities. Right. Okay. Uh, David Geffen gave to me, so you need your own label. You should have your own label. You signed Foreigner, Genesis, ABBA, you know, blah, 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 Because I watched David, who offered me a piece of Asylum Records back right. in the early days, start a record company and make them a lot of money. So I necessarily decided I'm going to start my own record label with my brother. And What's your I, brother doing at this point? My, oh, my! first of all, my, well, my brother ends up back from Hartford, ends up going to work for Warner Brothers. From Warner Brothers New York, they moved them out to California. So while I'm working, started working for Atlantic, Bob is now working for Warner Brothers in California. Once I took over at Atlantic, I needed a new general manager for Atlantic. So Bob now becomes the general manager of Atlantic in the early 70s. So you have the Greenberg team. And your father is still uh, working for the record distributor? Yeah. (laughs) Dad's still working for the distributor in Hartford. You got Bob in L.A. You got Jerry running Atlantic in New York. And, you know, we were uh, the Greenbergs running Atlantic. But so in 1980, Geffen comes to me and says, you know, you need, you should start your own record label, you know. And I said, fine, you know. He said, I go to Ahmed and my contract's up and I said, I want to start my, my own label. They don't want you to have it. They, they want, they'll offer you anything to stay at Atlantic, anything you want. I said, I was kind of like, just wanted something new. You know, you reach a certain point. I mean, I had it down. Hey, let me start something new, fresh, boop, boop. They wouldn't do it. So Geffen calls me up. We all know our, our friend David with his phone book. And he said, Alan Hirschfield wants to meet with you. Alan Hirschfield just took off at 20th Century Fox. Take a meeting with Alan Hirschfield. Alan Hirschfield said, we're going to offer you Half a 20, 20th Century Fox Records. We'll start a new company. We'll call it Green Fox Records. And 
here's the deal. So I, I go back to Ahmed and everybody. I said, listen, I'm leaving. I'm going to start a new record company. You got it. That's when they gave me Mirage. Bob and I started Mirage in 1980. We were consultants to Atlantic Records. And I stayed there for five years. But Prager called me when I started Mirage. What do you think was the first record I signed? Whitesnake. That was our first record. And what else was on Mirage? Oh, God. Southside Johnny, Phoebe Snow uh, had a big... We were doing a lot of dance records. Shannon, Let the Music Play, Brenda K. Star, The System, You're in My System. I mean, we, we were always on the charts. Five years, we were always on the charts. We were a small but profitable little label. It was just Bob and I and two other people. I took Jim Delahan with me and a secretary. We, we were two people in L.A., three of us in, or four of us in uh, New York. But that's the way those, you know, it's what's happening now with these little independent labels. Atlantic was doing all the marketing, the promotion, everything. And the next step is WTG? The next step was was Tommy Mottola calling me. No, the next step actually after Mirage was uh, Jerry Weintraub. Okay. Jerry Weintraub called me and said, I'm starting MGMUA. I want you to be my guy. I said, well, it's me and my brother, no problem. So I left. We only had like a couple of acts at that time on Mirage. So I left the acts there and went to MGMUA. First project I do at MGMUA is Jerry comes to me and he says, I'm doing a movie to the Karate Kid. You should do the music. Put together Peter Cetera, Brooks Arthur found the song, and we had Glory of Love. First record comes out with gold. MGM UA is in the record business. Jerry leaves after a year and a half. New guy comes in. He says, listen, I don't, I don't like the record business. I don't want a record business. He says, I want you, you to uh, still do soundtracks. I'll land on your contract. I said, gee, I don't know if that's for me. At the same time, Ahmed calls me. This is 1997 or 98. He goes, I'd love you to come back. And, and be part of Atlantic again. So I said, well, what are we talking about? He said, how about you become president of ADCO, which was the other label. I said, I'll only do it if I could stay in California. And I said, and it makes sense. You got Doug Morris running it there in New York. Leave me in California. I'll find things in California. He says, okay, you got it. So I'm now back at Atlantic, 1988, president of ADCO, First couple of records I sign, I do the soundtrack to Eddie Murphy, Coming to America. I do a deal with Jerry Heller. First rap record on for Wea was J.J. Fad, Supersonic, and Miss Chalet. So uh, then I signed to the Escape Club from England. I signed like six things. I had five gold records. All that happened like in a year and a half. But... Atlantic, just, it wasn't the same. And Tommy kept on calling me at Matola. He goes, listen, I'm taking over Sony. You're the first guy I want you to hire. I said, I ain't not coming back to New York. Would you go back to New York? No, never. Never. 
I mean, I keep reading when you talk. No, about I have nostalgia. And you go and you say, hey, I miss it. And then after like five or six days, okay. The way I always put it is New York City, greatest city in the world. I'd rather live in Los Angeles. Correct. Yeah. It's right. just like, it's just, the other thing is for people like us who grew up in the suburbs, right. even though the traffic is terrible, right. I like not being totally on top of each other in L.A. And I also like that there's not the BS of who your parents were. Everybody's so full of shit in Los Angeles that I could be whoever I want to be. No right. one really cares. Right. Exactly. Exactly. My big thing with Los Angeles was that I love boating and the first thing I did when I got out here was buy a boat. I kept it in Marina Del Rey. Then I moved it up to Newport. I'm boating every weekend, man. I'm, I'm like going crazy. So I say to Tommy, I'm not coming back. So he says, uh, fine, we'll give you your own label in California. I said, that makes sense. I said, you know, uh, California is still a very active talent situation, so they gave me my own label. But the, the interesting story is just before I went to take the job, I'm at the Atlantic 40th anniversary show. Where Led and Zeppelin reunites. Led Zeppelin reunites and Bonzo's, Bonzo's son, John Bonham's playing drums. I lean over and I say to my wife, I'm going to sign that kid. She said, what kid? I said, the drummer, John Bonham's son. So I go backstage, I grab Jason, I said, listen, man, I want to, what, what are you doing after this? He said, well, I'm thinking about putting a band together. No, 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 you're going to put a band together and you're going to be my first signing for my new label. So he goes, okay. So finds a lead singer, gets a guitar player. We get Bob Ezrin, greatest producer in the world. My first record on WTG is Disregard for Timekeeping. It's a platinum album. I'm in the rock business. So I look around at Atlanta, at, 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 uh, now I'm over at Sony, Columbia, and I look around and I said, what are they missing that I could bring to the table? So I said, they don't have any heavy metal. I signed Motorhead. Okay, we have the first Grammy-nominated record for Motorhead. I look around again and I say, they're not putting out any soundtracks. I get friendly with Cameron Crowe. WTG signs Say Anything. Peter Gabriel put together the uh, soundtrack. I had three gold records, like boom, 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 before you blinked. So then I got a call from Michael Jackson. This is like 1990. And the lawyer calls Michael Jackson, wants to meet with you. Cut to, uh, go take the meeting with Michael. Two hours, lovey, lovey, greatest guy in the world. And I take a position, and an equity position too, by the way, in uh, Michael's uh, MJJ Music. And um, first thing I do there, I think I mentioned, is the Free Willy. And then we signed Brownstone, we signed Tatiana Lee, it gave Rodney Jerkins his first record. So... My first job on earth, I guess, is making dreams come true, finding talent, loving the music, still to this day loving the music. Uh, I'm trying to help some friends of mine. I got two young artists that I'm trying to help develop. One's a, like a, a real Bruce Springsteen kind of guy named Travis March, and the other is a black singer up in from San Francisco, real 
great, great uh, black singer. So I'm still out there today now trying to help some people get things organized. The big thing that I'm working on also right now is a tribute to Michael in conjunction with his birthday. Michael's will be 60 on August 29th. And I came up with an idea to do a tribute. He's the king of pop, but he's also the king of dance. And I came up with an idea to put together all the young, the young new up-and-coming dance artists. I'm, I'm talking, obviously, Chris Brown, obviously Usher, obviously, you know, all those groups that are out there that are inspired by Michael. So we, we came up, we're, we're putting a song together called Shut Up and Dance, and we're going to get all worldwide. You know, I'm, I'm really very interested in this whole K-pop thing. I think this K-pop thing is going to explode here. So we're talking to BTS about being involved. We're talking to an artist from China. So I'm working on this project that it's kind of, I don't want to say it's like a we are the world thing, but it's it's a lot of great artists together paying tribute to Michael and his dance in the dance world. Okay, so it's one track. One track. And it's a cover of a previous Michael Jackson song. No, it's a brand new song. And Brand he, new song. But who wrote it? Uh, uh, Jason Derulo. Okay, yeah, I'm a big the, fan of his right. Yeah. That's really cool. So, okay, at this late date, you're still in the game. Yes. But on some levels, the game is very similar to how it was when you started, but another level different because the difference would be, yeah, everything's independent, everybody has individual power, but in the 60s when there were fewer records... If you had a hit record, everybody in America knew it. Right. Whereas today, it is hard to get that mind share. So what do you feel about music and the record business today? First of all, I feel that it's an amazing time for young artists. I, I'd like to preach to the young artists to say, have the patience to make your dreams come true. I tell everybody... The big word in our business right now is patience. And what I'm seeing is these young kids who grew up to our music, grew up to Led Zeppelin. I mean, like Greta Van... Greta Van Fleet, right. I mean, I read about it in your column. The first thing I did was I went, I looked at the record, and I said, God, if I had a record label... I'd sign him in a minute. And I called Jason when Jason right. made the deal. Right, Jason Flom, who's presently at Universal, where a lot of ex-Atlantic people were. His Lava Records, his heyday was at Atlantic. Right. But my, my point is, it, these kids are growing up to our music. They're, they're growing up to Billy Joel. They're growing up to Aerosmith. And they have the tools now available in their room to record, to make a video, to give it to YouTube, and I just think there's so worldwide now, there's so much great talent being nurtured that it's amazing. So how does this talent get exposed? Okay. A lot of it has to happen by touring. A lot of it has to happen by word of mouth. A lot of happen has to be lucky in getting signed to a record company. But there's an enormous opportunity right now for music companies, for m publishing companies, for management companies 
major opportunities now in the music business. And do you think rock is dead or rock can come back? No, rock's going to come back. Really? Why are you so convinced? I just smell it. Okay, call it a gut. All of a sudden, you'll 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 see it. It's going to be uh, it's going to be songs. I mean, no disrespect to rap and and to everything that's going on, but you know the main thing is is songs, and you know what? I mean, Billy's still out there making songs. Billy Joel, Bruce. It's a song song business. Imagine my granddaughter's. 13, 14 years old, calls me up. I said, who's your favorite band? Imagine Dragons. I mean, young kids are getting into rock, let me tell you. Uh, Panic at the Disco, et cetera. So I sm- I'm telling you, rock's going to come back. Well, certainly people want, but people don't realize, you know, because they, they give Greta Van Fleet a hard time sounding like Led Zeppelin. Well, this is 50 years after Led Zeppelin, and Led Zeppelin was influenced by the American blues guys, and it wasn't even 50 years there. Exactly. No, it's, it's, it's funny because a lot of those English acts, Clapton, Zeppelin, etc., they all grew up to the blues. Exactly, all American music. All American music, and that's where they got a lot of it from. Who did you work with who you believed in but didn't break through? Oh, boy. Um, I don't know. You know, that, that's a hard question. Uh, they, uh, I, I guess I was lucky that most of the acts broke through. Um, here's a, here's a, well, here's an example. I read in the newspaper, John Prine is out touring, has a record out. Well, Jerry Wexler signed John Prine. Right. But he didn't break through at Atlantic. I mean, he didn't really, you know what he's I'm saying? He's never really broken through. The, the times have caught up with him, so he's an established artist. Right. But he never had a hit. Right, exactly. But, you know, when I go back and I think, uh, you know, of some of the acts that Jerry found signed, learning from Jerry, the diversity of Jerry, he signed Delaney and Bonnie, then he went to Dr. John, then he did the Alice Cooper deal. I mean, this is a guy that was all over the place with music. And that's what I think, uh, you know, I am. I learned about soundtracks. I made the deal for the Muppet soundtrack. I picked Rainbow. I heard Rainbow Connection. This is a great story. I come back and then Jerry and Ahmed are in their office. I said, listen, I just made a great deal. We got the soundtrack to the Muppets. There's dead silence. Ahmed goes, who are the Muppets? <laughs> I said, well, they're, they're puppets. They got a TV show. Ah, TV doesn't sell. No, Ahmed, this is big. Trust me, this is going to be big. He said, what's the soundtrack? I said, well, it's basically music, but they, they got a song I think could be a hit. They got a song? What's the song? Oh, it's called Rainbow Connection. Who's going to do it? Oh, the frog. <laughs> Wait a minute. The frog is going to sing Rainbow Connection? I said, yeah, it's a Paul Williams song. I think it could be a hit single. They looked at me like I was smoking weed, man. Are you guys, are you crazy? And I remember Jerry, the quote from Jerry was, Ahmed, the kid's right more than he's wrong. If he says it's going to be a hit, it's going to be a hit. And it was. We'll pause here for a brief moment and get right back to Jerry Greenberg. Check out my writing at leftsets.com. I cover all the topics of the podcast and more. 
Go to leftsets.com and sign up for the newsletter to read all my rants and observations. Now, more with legendary record label executive Jerry Greenberg, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Okay, just covering up some other stuff, covering some other stuff. To what degree was Paola a factor in your history? I don't talk about, I'm not asking you your personal stories of paying people, but the business at large. Uh, I, I think it all got blown out of proportion. Hitman got blown out of proportion. We, uh, to me, I never handed a disc jockey any money. Did I uh, do certain promotions? I remember I took about 20 DJs to the Super Bowl uh, in Florida. Miami was playing or some I forget who was playing. Right. But uh, those things you could kind of get away with, those kind of promotional things. Um, but um, as far as cash being out there and or, or, or drugs, it wasn't as big as everybody's making it sound. Well, there was that era, though, where there was cash paid to independent promoters. Correct. Okay. And how much how much drugs did you see and do in your heyday? <laughs> I'm probably the only musician and the only one in the record business can, that could put my hand on a Bible and say, I never put anything up my nose. I never put anything in my mouth. The only thing I did, and I will tell you that I did it quite often, was smoke weed. But think about the 70s and weed. You know, I said something to somebody. They they laughed. I said, you know, you could put a blindfold on me, walk me into the Madison Square Garden, and I could tell what band is playing by how much weed I smell. <laughs> is that is that good? That's very good. So you you want to know who like the bands were? They got, right? Yeah, know? sure. Yes. Really? Oh yeah. Yes. Genesis, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, very big weed smokers, uh, and Zeppelin. Stones, not so much. I mean, yeah, but not not as much as those English uh, psychedelic bands or whatever. But um, I never smoked any weed in the in the office. Uh, never, you know. Yeah, you're you're out with the bands afterwards, and everybody's passing a joint. You, you know, you'd smoke. Okay, it. well, there were some heavy cocaine years, especially the late seventies, early eighties. Uh, how did you decide not to take it? That's a very good question, and I can give you the answer. I was very good friends with the drummer and average white band, very good friends, and I got a call in my office. Um, forgive me, I forgot his name. Guess what? So and so just died. I said, "What?" Yeah, he was at a party. He thought it was cocaine. It was heroin. He died. Right at that moment, I think the light bulb went off in my brain. Jerry, you're never gonna put any white stuff up your nose or in your mouth. Never ever. And I would be backstage with a lot of groups, and they'd be passing that shit around. But Jerry passed. Okay, and then how did you make Roundabout a hit? Because they had, yes, had three previous albums. The third one had some success, but Roundabout was a lengthy track that sounded like nothing on the radio. So you know that I, I did the edit on Roundabout. Uh, if you might have told me in the past, but I forgot. Right, yeah, no, same story. 
I went in the studio, worked with some engineers, got it down, got it played. And that's another example of like, Jerry, what can we do for you? And so at Christmas, we're giving Yes Gold Records, and they said, we got a present for you. And they sh show up, they give me a brand new drum set. Again, they knew I was a drummer. I was good friends with Alan White and all the boys. I say, take the drum set out to Nassau Coliseum. I want to sit in. <laughs> I say it as a joke. We go out to Nassau Coliseum. All of a sudden, bingo. They set up the drum set. Jerry is now playing Nassau Coliseum. You played all the venues. Oh, I played all the venues. So another story, a famous Led Zeppelin story, 1973, I believe it is, on the Houses of the... House of the Holy Tour, I think it was. They played Madison Square Garden for three nights. They're staying at the Drake Hotel. There's 200-odd thousand in the safe. It gets stolen, and they fly back to England not worrying about the money. A, do you think, many people think they stole the money themselves. What do you think happened? No, I don't think so. They, they don't need to steal the money, you know. Um I think it was really stolen. I, I think they realized there was no way they were going to get it back. And Listen, um, things happen <laughs> on the road, as we all know. Okay, well, it sounds like there's a lot of stories there. And then to what degree, when you had all these acts, I mean, people, acts like ABBA, they literally just made hits. They were hit in factory. But let's go back to Genesis. They didn't have hits you know, Peter Gabriel had a hit in 76 or 77, 77 with Salisbury Hill, at least an FM hit. But Genesis really didn't have a hit until the late 70s. Would you tell these bands, give me a hit? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you could get something that gets the attention, the attention of not, not only radio, but, you know, give me a hit video, uh, give me a song that maybe could be a commercial or give me a song that could be at the end track of a, of a, of a movie or something in, in, uh, in TV. Uh, but don't give up your creativity on doing it. I mean, don't say to yourself, oh, I'm going to copy it because... What you want to do is really be honest to yourself and to the songs you're writing and to the band you're putting together. Um, I think it's very important. You know, I was in a studio the other day and I was talking to a drummer that was Cheryl Crow's drummer. And we were talking and I said— You're talking about Dan McCarroll? Yeah. Okay. And I, and I said to Another him, drummer who's a business guy. Uh, and I said, you know, let me tell you something. We and the bass player are the foundation of a band. I mean, I can tell you that talking to you young guys out there that are guitar players or piano players or, you know, if you're going to, especially if you're going in the rock world, you better find yourself a great drummer and a great bass player because that's the foundation. Okay, since you're in it, who are the great drummers? <laughs> to me, the two greatest rock drummers is uh, John Bonham and Keith Moon. Those are the two great rock drummers. Uh, Chad from Chili Peppers is great. Matt Sorm is great. Um, 
But, you know, there's different kind of drummers. You know, Charlie Watts is just a goddamn jazz drummer playing two and four behind him. He's a barroom drummer, you know. So there's a lot of uh, uh, drummers that just keep Dennis Elliott and Foreigner was a great, great drummer. Um, but there's different styles. I mean, for me, if you're talking about a rock drummer with a sound, man, nobody's as better than Bonzo. Well, you know, I've seen, I certainly saw him in his heyday, but I will say seeing Keith Moon play Tommy with The Who at Fillmore East, it was like there were two drummers there. You just didn't even figure out how he could do it. It was amazing. So I'm right. Are you I know. Agree with me? Keith Moon's great. You know, it's funny. when it, You're a drummer. That's why I ask. Right. Drummers, I'm not going to weigh in. I'm certainly aware of the great drummers. Guitarists, I'll weigh in. Because I believe the best guitarist of the rock era is Jeff Beck. Okay? Hendrix did a lot of innovative things, but Beck is, you know. And I remember when they had the Arms Tour, and it was Page, Clapton, and Beck on the same stage. Right. 1982, Beck blew him off. So I'm not sure I'm going to weigh in on uh, who the best drummer is. Those are all certainly great drummers. Absolutely. Okay, Jerry, this has been wonderful. We've only hit the tip of the iceberg, but... Can we, can we do a part two? We can I'm... certainly do a part two. We want to drill down into the acts and specific stories of the acts. This time we got your general history, and which is get your father a job in the business. And... Uh, Certainly the top line, but you get down to the nitty-gritty. It's, you know, because we're here talking about the successes. And it's a lot of work. You're talking about patience. You know, you can have Led Zeppelin, which explodes on the second records. But a lot of things are really long work projects. And uh, there'll be more talk. So it's been wonderful. Thanks so much for being here. Okay. And I will like to come back because I'd like everybody to know that I'm currently doing a book on Atlantic in the 70s through the eyes of Jerry Greenberg. So it's going to cover everything just about Atlantic. And I think you know we've been filming a documentary on my life, which is... Well, that documentary's been going on for like five plus years. When is that documentary ever going to hit the uh, screens? Well, it's, it's, it's getting close. But, you know, I think I'm the only guy that has Richard Branson. I got the last interview from Jerry Heller and the last one from Jerry Weintraub. It's going to be a a very, very interesting movie or documentary or TV series. Well, so I, I know how to get my plug in, man. This is a promotion. Your roots are coming out. And certainly we've been talking about the documentary forever. And this is the heyday. People want to know oh, about, yeah. about what was going on in the uh, 70s. Oh, yeah. But the, the but, but the great thing is you're going to hear Richard Cole, the roadie, talk about Jerry taking the sticks and going. It's not going to come from me. So that's what I, it, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Okay, well, we'll look forward to that. And when it's launching, we'll have you back. Okay, buddy. God bless. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jerry. Till next time, it's Bob Left Sets on the Bob Left Sets podcast. That wraps up this week's episode of the Bob Left Sets podcast, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with legendary record label executive Jerry Greenberg. He had some great stories. Send me your feedback at bobatleftsets.com. Until next time, I'm Bob Leftsets. Sets.